0: hello everyone welcome to snit a studies in national and international development is the longest running weekly interdisciplinary seminar series at queen's university since 1983 snit has proudly hosted prominent canadian and international scholars who bring fresh perspectives to issues of local national and global development please share our podcast with friends family and colleagues we're glad to have you with us
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the second Syned event of the term. On behalf of co-chairs myself, Aicha Tomac, and Scott Rutherford, uh, and our coordinator, Monika Sansao, I welcome you to the longest-running interdisciplinary seminar series at Queen's University. This year marks Syned's 40th anniversary. And for 40 years, it has been a space that makes possible global connections, engagements with anti-oppressive work, and ultimately thinking collaboratively to advance a more just and equitable world. Sinead is hosted by Queens University, which sits on the traditional territories of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy and the Anishinaabek nation and continues to benefit from ongoing colonization in the forms of extractions of resources, knowledges and practices of indigenous peoples, not only in Kataraki, but around the Turtle Island. Uh, On behalf of SNED hosts who are settlers on this land, I would like to reiterate that SNED is committed to amplify the voices of scholars, activists, and artists who study, work, and create towards dismantling white supremacy, settler colonialism, and global neoliberalism. We believe the events we organize, including this panel, demonstrates this commitment. Speaking of this panel, we are privileged to host Drs. Barbara Perry and Shauna MacDonald. Dr. Barbara Perry is the director of the Center on Hate, Bias and Extremism at Ontario Tech. Uh, She has written extensively in the area of hate crime and right-wing extremism, including her co-authorship of the report called The Victim's Truth is the Victim's Truth, CSES response to hate crimes on campus at Queen's University, uh, and I will post the link in the chat in a second for this report. Dr. Shannon McDonnell is an Associate Professor in Communication Arts at the University of Waterloo. Uh, her research examines intersectional feminism within media, popular culture, cinema, performance, and public art. Uh, we also have two discussants who kindly agreed to facilitate this dis- discussion. Uh, Alexandria Leduk received her Masters of Arts from Queen's University in 2023. Congratulations. Focusing on the incel community, her research examines the relationship between incel constructions of gender and incel violence, including self harming, gender based violence, and extremist violence. Samantha King is director and professor in the School of Kinesiology and Health Studies at Queens, where she researches and teaches in the sociocultural stream. Thank you all for agreeing to be part of SNED and joining us. Thank you.
2: Thank
3: you, Aicha. Uh, we're uh, just a little note on the format. so. Uh, Barbara is going to go first, and then Shana is going to go second, and they're going to speak for about 20 minutes each, and then um, we have uh, some questions for them, the moderators, and uh, we will also then open it up uh, to the floor for folks to um, ask questions and, and provide feedback. And so with that, I'll hand it over to Barbara. And thank you, Aicha. We should have started with that.
0: Thank you so much for having this conversation. Uh, I think so important. To, uh, I think because of what happened in Waterloo, but I think even more broadly than that, we are certainly in an era where we're seeing a dramatic increase in a whole array of uh, hate fueled violence, whether gender motivated, racially motivated, religiously motivated, or or otherwise. Uh, and uh, you know, I think even in the aftermath, even after, and, and since uh, the Waterloo attack, of course we had the the protests, uh, anti-trans protests uh, across the country just last last week. Uh, and the weeks all blend together. Uh, so a very important conversation. I, I, i'm I'm gonna make an observation before I begin, though, and I'm sort of looking at the names popping up and and images popping up. Is this only a women's problem? Right. We have maybe two, three, four men uh, in the audience. Where are our male allies uh, in this conversation? And (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Welcome. Uh, Bring your friends next time. Uh, It's always it's always a struggle, uh, isn't it? And I think we we often run into the same thing when we're having conversations about uh, racialized violence and, and forms of discrimination that uh, you know, we we rarely see in the room uh, the allies, right? It, it is the people who are most affected who are also tasked with making change. And I think that that is, uh, that's a mistake. So nonetheless, uh, that said, uh, I think it's also interesting because I sort of wanted to start my conversation uh, by reminding, and, and what I'm going to talk about here is that that nexus, that intersection between uh, the far right and uh, gendered violence. Uh, And uh, I sort of start my conversation with this notion that gender is really um, an organizing principle for much of the far right. I'm just gonna share some slides here. Uh, so, and I think where that, where that comes from is, uh, you know, from one of the mottos, one of the phrases that has become so important to the far right. And we hear it used by, by individuals, by groups. It's, you know, part of the, uh, the, uh, the mission statement uh, for our individual groups, Faith Goldie even when she, even as she was running for mayor of Toronto, arguably one of our most diverse cities actually spouted the the 14 words, uh, which is we must secure the existence of our people and a future for white children. Uh, and so, as I say, that to me suggests that in fact, gender is an organizing principle. I mean, if this is the foundation of uh, much of your belief system, your ideological positioning, uh, then it, it, it inevitably uh, invokes issues around gender. Uh, you know, how do we secure, how do they secure uh, the, the future uh, of a white race? except by controlling women and by controlling women's sexuality, uh, by controlling women's reproduction, uh, uh, and and controlling their bodies, uh, essentially. Uh, And so that is something that resonates, I think, across uh, the movement in many different ways. And... uh, what I have here is uh, sort of our emerging uh, or work in progress uh, in terms of sort of the, uh, the typology of what we're seeing with respect to the far right now. Very different than when we published our first study of the far right in 2015. I mean, really what we were seeing then uh, were very traditional elements of the far right, neo-Nazis, uh, skinheads, and white supremacists. And the alt-right were just sort of starting to emerge uh, with Trump's ascendancy uh, as well. Uh, and now we see that the movement is so much more diverse and and disparate, if you will. Uh, and and not just great group based. You know, the groups are still there. They are much less important now than uh, sort of what we're referring to as atomization of the movement. That is, more and more individuals, unaffiliated individuals, are being drawn into the movement, often through, you know, sort of the gateway drug, if you will, the conspiracy theories, uh, and, uh, you know, coming into the movement um, without necessarily joining a particular group. But they are consuming and weaving together some of the narratives that they're finding online. Uh, And again, many of those narratives do intersect uh, with questions uh, uh, around around gender, whether it's you know especially if we're thinking about the skinheads and the Nazis and the militia, uh, whether it's sort of around the toxic masculinity of the men themselves. This is one arena in which they can perform uh, aggression. They can perform you know the most uh, violent form of of masculinity. And so it's very appealing from that perspective. So gender plays in there, uh, but also sort of the the converse. And that is in in terms of also controlling women and what is women's role uh, in uh, in the movement and in the broader society uh, as well. Uh, And so we see a very traditional reactionary uh, vision of uh, where women belong, again, both in the movement and, and elsewhere. And I'll talk about uh, they, where they are in the movement uh, a little later on. Uh, and so, you know, it is coming sort of over to the gender gender defenders notion. This is that's been sort of changed quite dramatically over time uh, as we've developed this typology. We started, you know, we're just talking about the incels. cells. Uh, well, that you know that sort of wasn't inclusive enough. That, that, so then we started thinking about it as the manosphere, uh, and that really tended to relegate it to the online space specifically. And certainly, again, as we saw with the uh, uh, anti trans initiatives in the last week or so, and, and Prior to that, even uh, the narratives uh, and you know school board trustees running on explicitly anti-trans narratives. Um, that, uh, you know, it's not just in the online space but very, very active in the offline space and implicates, you know, sort of uh, both gender relations between men and women, it implicates a gender binary uh, and, uh, you know, sort of the appropriate place of real men, real women uh, as, as they would understand it. Uh, and, and that seeps into many other pieces, obviously, Christian fundamentalism, you know, some very reciprocal uh, relationship there uh, again and obviously you know the more traditional forms white supremacists uh, skinheads uh, etc um if, and if there's any of these that you're not familiar with i'm happy to unpack some of them uh as uh, as we come to the q a um so just a little more detail what are some of the strands that we see uh that link that sort of thread together far right uh and uh, and gender well obviously there is you sort of these these first few um, the men's rights community uh if you will uh that uh, you know seem to imply that there is a zero sum game uh that is that if women are gaining these for many of them, un- undeserved rights from their perspective. If women are gaining uh, these rights or they're gaining uh, in terms of uh, equity and inclusion, then men must somehow uh, be losing something. Uh, that they are, must be losing uh, some rights, whether it is around access to, to women's bodies, which comes into play with the incels, or uh, just, you know, just their privilege. And that really is what they're losing, right? It really is uh, their, their privilege uh, that they're losing. It's certainly not their, um, their, their position uh, of power. Uh, men continue to dominate, whether we're talking about politics, whether we're talking about culture, whether we're talking about uh, you know economics, uh, even I, I think you know, in in terms of violence, you know by, uh, domination through through violence. So the men's rights groups uh, are part of, and, and again, think of this as a as a Venn diagram. Many of the men's rights groups are very closely affiliated with the far right, uh, but also obviously, uh, first and foremost about gender. Um, misogyny built in here uh, that is it's not just Uh, you know a sense of where and I I should probably maybe in some respects sort of put anti-feminism misogyny together because it's often uh, the misogyny is often a response to uh, you know contemporary uh, women that is uh, you know women who are empowered and who are strong in their own rights Um, so that hostility is uh, you know it's, it's it's not just deserved for those who are strong but is uh you know also uh, extends uh, beyond that uh, and of course feminism is the uh the bogey here uh, it is feminism that is to blame for that loss of privilege uh, that so many of them hold hold on to uh that it is feminism that is responsible for uh, the again undeserved rise of uh, of women in terms of strengths uh, and strength and and rights and access uh, to what were heretofore men's places, um, the boardroom uh, and and the halls of justice and the halls of, uh, of parliament as well. And often that spills over then into uh, the the incel movement, uh, and uh, I think that uh, maybe we'll hear from Alexandria uh, later, who can tell us uh, a little bit more about the uh, the incel movement. But uh, it really is a reaction against women who you know are thought not to need men, uh, and in particular the you know the men who are part of that incel movement, uh, you know feel like they have lost that ease of access. They have lost what is uh, right rightfully theirs, uh, you know, access to to women as, as sexual partners in particular. Uh, and so comes back to that misogyny and that, that hostility. Uh, lest we think that this is only a, a men's movement or a men's issue, uh, we have to take account also, I think, of, uh, of trad wives. Uh, and those are women who are, um, you know, sort of Part of this this broader movement, uh, who themselves accept the notion and celebrate the notion, uh, in fact that uh, you know that that the woman's whole place is in the home, and so are uh, you know whether they were there in the first place or not um, are eschewing uh, the workplace and and uh, you know sort of powerful positions and coming back to the home to be the housewife uh, wife to to secure uh, that future for white children uh, and to create. and and to nurture uh, white children in particular. Uh, So again that sort of that very traditional notion of uh, and reactionary notion of uh, a woman's place. Um, We see some strains of feminationalism uh, here as well Um, and that's uh, sort of a very I think uh, bizarre and exploitative uh, convergence of, of nationalism um, and and right wing extremism uh, with certain strains, certain strains uh, of feminism. And it's it's sort of the co-optation of the notion of um, of women's rights to justify and uh, provide the ammunition for xenophobia. Uh, and in particular, you know the this dissemination of of myths around the threats posed to women by uh, people of color, men of color. Uh, by Muslim men, uh, and by, uh, by immigrants, uh, as well. So it is, uh, you know, a nationalism shaped not just around race, but also uh, around gender, which obviously then spills over into, you know, what is this millennia, (laughs) maybe not millennia, uh, but certainly centuries old, um, Prescriptions against uh, and uh, against mis- uh, miscegenation—that is, interracial relationships. So, uh, you know, an ongoing emphasis on something that we thought, you know, was was a, a conversation for the past. Uh, that is, that you know, in order to be true to the race, in order to perpetuate the white race, uh, you know, again, women must be barred from. Uh, engaging in uh, interracial relationships, they must remain racially pure, as as must their children. And we also then, we also obviously see uh, in, in again this is not something new within the the far right movement. Uh, it is again at root homophobic and transphobic. It, it uh, highlights and emphasizes. It demands uh, a gender binary and very explicit spaces places and roles for men and for women uh very uh, restrictive uh expectations for appropriate behavior uh especially in terms of uh in terms of sexuality in terms of uh, romantic as well as, uh, as sexual partners again uh you know uh, Gay gay men and lesbians are understood to be, uh, gender traders, but also race traders. If if they're white, because they're not, uh, from their perspective, again, uh, the belief is that they are not then reproducing uh, the uh, the the white race. So uh, you know a whole array of uh, of problems laid at the feet there. Um, We've seen no shortage, uh, sadly, of um, evidence of this relationship between far-right violence and um and and or misogyny uh, and uh, and murders, mass murders, in fact., uh, mm-hmm. just a you know a sampling here. And I think we're all probably very familiar uh, with the uh, the first three, which really were, I mean, we didn't call Mark Le Pen, uh, you know, an incel at the time, um, certainly anti-feminist. About um, Elliot Roger and, and more recently, of course, Alec Manassian, who were very explicit. Uh, and as, as you see here, the the language that they uh, they use uh, I don't know why you girls aren't attracted to me, but I will punish you all for it. It's an injustice, a crime. Uh, and Manassian, in uh, one of his posts before his attack, the incel rebellion has already begun. We'll overthrow all the Chads and Stacey's. All hail, Supreme Gentleman, uh, Elliot Roger. Uh, and those are very explicit, very obvious, right? The role of gender there, but even in uh, you know two incidents that we have, we associate with anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant uh, uh, violence, we also if we look through their um, their manifestos, sorry, just moving my, whoops, sorry moving that another way, Um, that we also see references to gender there, Brevik blaming, uh, you know, feminists for the loss of, uh, or sort of the the emasculate, you know, the word I'm looking for a masculine (laughs) Why can't I say it? Um, uh, uh, The feminization uh, of man, the loss of strength, the loss of power, the last loss of uh, their appropriate uh, aggressive instincts. Um, Brendan Tarrant uh, as well in uh, in in New Zealand um, also, you know, begs for this return to uh, to traditional values. So, what are the common threads? I think I've sort of alluded to some of them as uh, as we've gone along. Obviously, toxic masculinity. So it's sort of both sides of the equation uh, that if we think about the you know the, the many of the men that we've seen there, um, they have turned their ideal of mass what is masculine, what it means to be masculine, uh, into its worst possible form in terms of the violence then that is uh, perpetrated uh, against others. Uh, obviously, uh, the, uh, the emphasis on patriarchal values, very traditional values, a gender binary, uh, and the very explicit roles associated with that, and of course, uh, women's place. Uh, and also this sense of victimhood, and this is you know, you know, what woke is all about, what cancel culture is all about, right, uh, is that it's, it's these poor fellows who are being silenced now. It's these poor fellows uh, who are being persecuted and, and prosecuted, uh, if you will. Uh, and that uh, you know have have lost uh, have lost ground uh, that they need to make up five minutes. Thank you. Uh, and you see here on, on you know one example uh, you know this is from the Proud Boys who are now listed terrorist entity but uh, have morphed into uh, in the Canadian context Canada First now. Uh, but you see here sort of that distillation in in one image the distillation of so many of those uh, those threads that i'm referring to here and the last thing I'll, I'll reference is the place of women within the movement uh you know again especially given uh, the misogyny that permeates the movement it might be something of a surprise to find women uh, involved in the far right except for the the trad wives, uh, for example uh, but in fact we do find and this is from Christy Campion's work in, in 2020 uh, and reinforced I think by some interviews that I've started to do with women uh, is that uh, you know that there there are places uh, for women they do make their place find their place uh, within the movement in a way that uh, is you know might be be unexpected in some respects faith goldie was an interesting one because you know for all that she was sort of at the time uh the poster child for the far right and never hesitated to you know have a a microphone and a camera in front of her uh and was you know um she would also in her her um rants online uh say you know in essence you know but i'm just a girl why are you listening to me you big boys need to go and uh, and do all the work sort of um, conundrum uh, in respects but um you know the, the, the roles that women play are are varied um some of them are the exemplars so there are a lot uh, of, of women who are held up uh like faith goldie for example and, and others as well as um well maybe not faith goldie in this context Uh, as what a a true uh, a true white woman is and what her role is so again those trad wives Um, there are some who are very active within the movement taking on leadership roles there are those who are sort of the communications folks who are um, you know very effective recruiters one minute thank you Uh, and uh, and and provide some of the fodder the thinkers the writers the people who are writing the script uh, those sorts of things. And there are some who are violent actors as well. This is a, probably a, a very small uh, minority, but so too is it with with men in terms of the racialized violence. They're, they're as likely to fight one another. Uh, and women uh, in the movement, uh, again, this is one of the ironies, um, are, are far more likely to be victims of violence within the movement than to uh, to lead the action in terms of, uh, of violence. Um, but again, um, there are places uh, for women in the movement where they uh, they negotiate with that misogyny and where, in fact, they actually exacerbate uh, the problems of misogyny as well. And I will uh, leave it at that and turn the floor now over to Shana. So thank you very much for your time. Looking forward to uh, conversation and questions in short order.
2: Thanks so much. Uh, Let me try and get this into, how does that look? Yeah, good. This Thanks so much. So I want to build on Dr. Perry's really, really useful remarks. And I'm really glad to see the tradwife and the fem cell kind of sphere conversation happening because I think it's it's crucial and, and troubling in lots of ways. So I'm going to speak a little bit about online misogyny in particular, and I'm trying to make connections about how that's spilling into our spaces of learning. And so there's two things I'm trying to do with the talk, um, but I'll start them by thinking about the manosphere, um, which is, you know, as we've already heard, uh, kind of conglomerate of niche communities that are aligned with a common interest in masculinity and an alleged crisis within masculinity and how that's tied to anti-feminist sentiment um this is what i would say is part of influencer culture that arose uh, with the advancing of web 2.0 and smartphones and the apps that kind of support that uh that kind of communication technology and so the manosphere is relying on reddit youtube and twitter most particularly now x um to share the messaging and it includes things like videos podcasts memes hashtags and uh, manifestos, uh, which we just heard about. But I think memes, I'm a meme scholar. Memes are really important in this conversation. I'm not gonna talk about them today, but if it comes up in the questions, I'm happy to talk a little bit more about that. Um, so I think Debbie Ging's work on, on the manosphere and cell culture is really important. And she notes that, um, you know, what happens to the manosphere is that there's online spaces that enable self-described beta males to weaponize misogyny and racism, to protect um, and secure the interests uh, or secure the internet as a space for white male um, actors who feel that they have little social, cultural or economic capital offline. And in particular, I think it's important to see how there's, there's a politics of grievance happening here. And I think that was talked about in Dr. Perry's work um, that tries to become exclusionary in order to produce forms of cultural capital. And I'm really interested in how that operates. So the Manosphere then, upholds these practices of mediated or online misogyny that do entail forms of harm. And those forms can be direct in the sense of being psychological, professional, reputational or physical, but also indirect in the ways in which they make the Internet a less equal and less safe space that's less inclusive for women, girls and others who are being marginalized. And so, you know, I think it's important for us to continually be thinking about how this vitriol has these cultural repercussions beyond violence that include the silencing, the chilling and the self-censorship of those targets. And I think a lot about that um, in my research. Um, So there's a recent study that came out uh, in September um, by Olga Juraz from the Open University of the UK, who who interviewed 4,000 women and girls. And it's the largest study to date on this issue. And she found that eight in 10 um, people uh, she spoke to who experienced online violence, which included things like abusive messages, um, intimate photos being shared without consent, trolling and threats affected these women and girls negatively. And that included things such as uh, loss of confidence, uh, withdrawing from posting or getting involved in debates and less able to express themselves online. And as someone who studies feminist activist movements, this is really a problem because we're seeing active erasure of feminists or women participating in public discourse. And so that's, you know, Troubling. so if we think through the history of the manosphere it includes a couple of different uh groups when we talk about that conglomerate of niche communities uh beginning with men's rights activists and pickup artists um, in the early 2000s and uh mra groups are coming out of the 1970s historically mra groups were tied to feminist groups of the second wave but then kind of splintered off and began a politics of grievance that then kind of became a playbook that now is being sort of re uh Remanifested manifested in, in a Web 2.0 way. Um, beyond that, then we move into these further subgroups of men going their own way, uh, which are a, a segregationist male kind of space and involuntary celibates or incels. Um, so what recent studies have noted, and here I'm citing one by Ribeiro A.L. from 2021, is that these newer groups are more toxic and misogynist. Um, and they think that this might be kind of showing a, a trend within the manosphere as a whole. So the Center for Countering Digital Hate just released a report in 2022 that noted in the overtime, uh, 2021 to 2022, that they were studying um, a bunch of um, you know incel discourse online, there was a 59% increase in violent rhetoric. Um, and this study in particular makes uh, the links that were made earlier in um, Dr. Price's presentation around incel discourse being tied to motivations behind at least 59 uh, active murder uh, murders, uh, most notably Isla Vista, um, and the van attacks, um, which cited, uh, the Isla Vista attack as an inspiration. So that, this report in particular fears that this turn towards more violent rhetoric, um, on incel channels will mean more violence offline, and they're condemning a lack of action by platforms and the governments to curb this threat. So one thing that I study and want to think a little bit about then is the role that platform design plays, and in particular its reliance on the, um, attention economy and how that allows for the manosphere and its more violent kind of forms to flourish. So social networking sites are responsible for circulating media toxicities um, and I don't need to you know prove that because it's been really well established by a lot of scholars in the past uh, decade or so including Ruha Benjamin, um, Dignazio and Klein, Nakamura and Chow White and Sophia Noble. So those are like I think really important interventions that we've we've learned about how explicitly social media sites and the internet are set up to um, enact certain types of violence against marginalized um, communities. Uh, Wendy Chen argues something similar in her book, especially around how divisive social beliefs um, on social media platforms are operating in the ways that they were meant to. So she says technological developments are amplifying and automating rather than acknowledging repairing the mistakes of a discriminatory past. And so what all of this research is ultimately suggesting is that the kinds of discrimination we see circulating are baked into and hardwired into the design of the technologies themselves. Um, And so there's a lot of consequences to this obviously in the sense that this hate is being directed at marginalized communities, Um, It's rooted in social inequities that are based on white supremacy, patriarchy, heteronormativity, and um, we have to read these from an intersectional point of view because when we see the kind of hate coming out online, it's not just necessarily always one identity group, but it's a mixing of those. And I think that was made clear in the previous presentation. So, the other half of this that's a problem for, for my what I see in my research is that male aggression and dominance are being normalized and excuse, uh, excused um, and kind of placing men as having more rights than women, femme, and non-binary presenting people in public spaces and that excluding forms of violence such as death and rape threats, doxing, and dismissing women's right to speak and then commenting on bodies as a way of negating personhood. So Whitney Phillips and Ryan Milner make this explicit in their book, You Are Here, um, in the way that they talk about uh, a network crisis. And for them, this network crisis is producing toxic media ecologies. And they make this parallel to climate crisis and thinking about how we're in a haze of media pollution. And um, we kind of can't really see through the fog of that, but we need to map it. Um, and so the features for them of this network crisis include polarization, increased hostility, different forms of online hate, um, and an intensified disinformation environment. And this crisis emerges from early 2000s era ship posting, which, um, Whitney Phillips wrote a book on called, I forget what it's called, but it's about trolling, um, while, um, which was appealing in the early 2000s because it had this kind of anarchistic refusal of dominant culture. Uh, but the problem is, is that it quickly shifted into promoting uh, these kind of spaces of toxicity. Um, and I would argue, building on Phillips, that the intern- these internet practices of shitposting from early, like LOL cats, memes, all that stuff from the early 2000s, Uh, greatly inform current internet culture and what's permissible in it. And I say this because there was a lack of consequences early on in platforms experienced by ship posters who were sharing racist, homophobic, transphobic, and sexist materials, and it encouraged and normalized this as a way of being acceptable in online spaces and, of course, emboldened people, but also became a way of situating your own status and, again, cultural capital online. So a secondary problem with this is that there's an underlying media, structural media ecology that creates the conditions that, yes, these things can kind of prosper without consequence, but also media conglomerates are benefiting from the virality of this media and producing it as infotainment, which creates attention, clicks, likes, et cetera. So it's kind of really built up and and tied into a platform capitalist economy. So this is all super grim, (laughs) Um, but I'm going to try and pivot a little bit because my research actually focuses on feminist um, pushback within online spaces. And in doing this research recently, I was following, um, which I'll talk about as a case study, um, a a feminist philosopher getting kind of piled on on Twitter. And it made me understand and clarify for me this notion of what I'm calling the dis- disinformation of misogyny, which is a purposeful spread of falsehoods um, that women and femme presenting people are inherently of less value without agency and are situated socially to serve and provide various forms of labor for men. So that's the disinformation piece that I think is being circulated in misogynist spaces online right now. Um, And this builds on Kate Mann's uh, useful work on both the logic of misogyny and also male entitlement in her two most recent books, where she argues that um, this regressive view of women situates men in a privileged position of entitlement, wherein women's role is uh, to give support, admiration, and attention. And if women step out of that role, they're gonna be rebuked with misogynist resentment, punishment, and indignation. And so I think this is where, you know, the trad wife becomes really, really interesting because the trad wife is playing out and confirming this logic of misogyny and being venerated for it. Um, So I think that this is a a useful. but what I want to do now is kind of pivot in my last little bit to talk about the link between this online toxicity and spaces of learning. And I'll do it through this case study. So on April 24th, 2023, uh, Dr. Daisy Dixon tweeted a photo of herself alongside an image of David same team. Um, And the, the tweet was posted to celebrate her first academic appointment, permanent position. And it plays on that meme culture of what a feminist looks like and what they actually look like, you know, which we see kind of all across the internet. What ensued was a, a lot of trolling that dismissed her identification as a philosopher, but also quickly kind of devolved into slut shaming, body shaming and rape and death threats. So I'm going to show a couple of just sort of the, the little smorgasbord of what came at her. Um, this shows a well-used playbook of online intimidation and violence against anyone who's going to claim agency, uh, especially women within the zero-sum game of patriarchy, as somehow her claiming this is going to detract from the centrality of a white, cis male, able-bodied subject as the voice of, you know, the, the, the subject in spaces of thinking. So this disinformation and misogyny is a form of gatekeeping that asserts women and other marginalized figures are not uh, welcome in public space, and especially as speaking or knowing subjects. And it advances this ideology that people, uh, only a certain person, a white male person, can be uh, afforded the designation of philosopher. And, and Kate Mann actually writes a lot about this in Logical Misogyny. So the trolling then responses to Dixon's post show that femme and genderqueer bodies are deviant, abject, excessive, unwelcome in these social political norms. And it perpetuates this through a disinformation and misogyny. And it reminds us in this space, when we look at these kind of comments, that there is a possibility of violence for those for whom the internet was not made, but also who spaces of learning were not historically made. Because we dare to exist, we have a threat of violence. And there's few structural supports there, I would say, especially in online spaces, to ensure our deserved safety. So the happy part of the story is that um, there was a really great kind of counterpylon, where a lot of um, scholars and, you know, thinkers from all different kind of situated positions were clapping back and showing themselves and like photoshopping themselves with David Hume in like really hilarious places. And so there there was a joyful part to this. And so I think that it's really important that we understand the, the absolute necessity when it's safe to do so, to take up any available means on the internet of taking up spaces and pushing back and creating community. And that's what my work kind of centers along. And we can see that this counter trolling, this counter ship posting is frivolous but it also produces these kind of collective responses that allow for different forms of existence to be on the internet, but also to counter what's going on. I'm gonna fast forward because I don't know how much time I have in at the five minute mark.
3: You have six minutes. Okay.
2: you know, I, I'm I'm going to publish on this, so you'll, you'll read about this, but one of my favorite things was when Daisy Dixon was like, I know it's as if we're humans without actual brains. And I kind of love that because it's twisting the logic of misogyny to be a different kind of logic or show the illogicalness of that. Um, anyways, so the response of my research collaborators and myself to all of this, um, in particular in the wake of the violent attacks on our campus in June, is to build greater networks of support because I don't know what else to do. So we're gonna build support networks. Um, and we're doing this in turn by starting a digital feminist network in Canada that addresses the impacts of online misogyny, in particular, how it impacts our spaces of learning and our ability to be thinking women <laughs> feminists, and scholars uh, publicly. So the violence that we see being fueled by targeted disinformation is an urgent public safety issue in Canada Um, and we think it requires uh, immediate attention. And so the Digital Feminist Network, um, is bringing together feminist and queer scholars. Uh, Currently we're at four different universities, University of Ottawa, York University, University of Waterloo and McMaster. We're in the middle of um, applying for funding for this. That will, kind of mobilize expertise, share resources and develop toolkits that can be customizable for any university public space. And these will think about technology facilitated gender-based violence and how this kind of impacts um, what we do in our spaces. And we're doing this through research creation because we're all kind of tied into those spaces of making and learning. And so we're working with oral histories, sound walks and, and zine workshops to kind of draw together those conversations. Um, and hopefully from whatever we learn from there, we will then bring out into a bigger public and ideally within a year or two this network becomes national and then hopefully international so if you're interested please email me um i think that from our perspective in my uh collaborations with my my team we feel like feminists addressing online misogyny and offline consequences um the most significant work that we can do is through ground up coalitions and community building. And we are kind of being cautiously hopeful about this because we've studied the kinds of positive impacts of Black Lives Matter, Me Too, and I Don't Know More. And we know that there's a possibility through coalition and solidarity of producing the kinds of conversations that need to happen. And from those, hopefully that we get these kind of stronger networks of support that maybe are allowed to or get spaces where they can start enacting or impacting policy, <laughs> which is where it all needs to go. It needs to be regulation and policies around this, um, not just in online spaces, but also in our universities. So I think I'll end there.
3: Thanks. Thank you so much, um, that uh, amazing food for thought. I'm gonna hand it over to Alex to begin our Q and A and discussion.
4: Um thank you both those were both great presentations. Um so we're going to start with the individual questions. Um and we'll start with Sh- uh, Shanna. Um so how have things been at
2: Waterloo in the aftermath of the attack? I actually wrote down answers because that was like it's actually it's a, it's a tough thing to talk about. Um there's a lot of anger and a lot of pain. Um and I feel like the thing that I'm really responding to is that people are seeking opportunities to process together and to articulate and speak together. And it's like the one of the greater senses of pain I'm ex- sort of noticing and experiencing myself is feeling isolated and alone and not knowing how to feel safe when you're alone. And so, again, that's probably why I'm talking a lot about the ground-up coalitions because there's, you know, institutions... There's only so much an institution can do because it's a slow moving machine. And so what I'm noticing on campus is a lot of people gathering informally ad hoc and doing a lot of processing, grieving, and connecting together and making sense of what it means, you know, to have the things we've always had about not feeling safe in, in public spaces of learning or online, and then the anger that's tied to that. So there's, there's again, anger and grief, and then coming together and being like, we've got to do something as, as these coalitions. And we're seeing that on campus now, a lot of disparate people coming together and just having conversations. So we're at the conversation stage. <laughs> um, and that's, I think, a, an important place to be in the meantime. I don't know what kinds of actions that will look like once we've gotten through processing, but right now there's just an absolute um, craving and desire for community.
4: Um, thank you for that. Um, so what has been working and what hasn't been working in terms of the response?
2: I think that the productive ways in which the university very quickly named what was happening as violence tied to gender um, and, and um, kind of violence directed at issues around gender, gender identity, gender expression, and sexuality, that naming, I think, was really important, because then it allowed those of us who feel targeted by these things to say, yeah, okay, we're, we're being taken seriously. And I think that's really important. So that has been working. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, it's not being swept away, it's absolutely center and central to conversations happening in central admin at the upper levels of the university Um, and so I appreciate that attention that's happening I think that it probably isn't what isn't working is that there's no quick fix solution this is long-term stuff that needs to be addressed and for me in particular I think that paying attention to how sexism and racism are pervasive not only on a campus for people's lived experience, but also in the disciplines we work within. <laughs> uh, again, baked into our the the kind of truths held by disciplines, especially at a STEM school. Um, we need to be addressing that. But that's a long term, that's a long game, like decade long, two decades kind of process. And so is that long, is that gonna help in the short term? Probably not. So that's probably where things are at.
4: Um, You've already kind of touched on this, but do you want to comment any further on any particular conditions in the Waterloo environment that should be further addressed in order to understand and prevent future violence?
2: Well, I think that there's no, I don't think it's a surprise to say that we're a siloed university. And we talk about that a lot within our university in the sense that we have a, a set of faculties that don't often overlap. And those faculties are all distinguished for how they are situated in their own fields. And so we don't see a lot of conversation at this point necessarily happening, although it's there are tons of efforts to make this the case to talk through say the kinds of expertise I would have as a feminist scholar with um, professors working in engineering, right? Where we're not, we don't have common language yet. And so I think that's kind of place where we can kind of, yeah, where we can look for for greater overlaps, but the university does support and is looking to foster interdisciplinarity as one of its core goals. And so maybe that's a place where this can happen. Now the question becomes, does that include thinking through, you know, perspectives of gender, race, colonialism as part of that interdisciplinary conversation, which hopefully it will.
4: Thank you so much, Shanna. Um, Moving on to Barbara, uh, is there anything that you'd like to say about the excellent report you wrote for Queens? Uh,
0: thanks Thanks for asking about that. Uh, it was, a, it, I must say, <laughs> excuse me, it was an interesting process uh, to come home to my alma mater. I did my first two degrees at, at Queens uh, to have those sorts of conversations. Uh, and I think that uh, it, it, in, in some respects, Queens hadn't changed much since I had been there I'm not going to say how many years ago, many, many years ago, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, the demographics and, and the privilege uh, on campus. What I think was particularly interesting was that this was the report was something that really um, the administration, their hands were forced uh, by the kinds of grassroots uh, organizing and uh, and lobbying that you suggested, Shana. Um, You know, there had been a, a series of, uh, of incidents, some related, some unrelated on campus, particularly focusing on indigenous and, and queer communities. And um, uh, there was a sense as we came to find out that um, they weren't taken seriously, but I think in particular that there was a failure to recognize the context in which these incidents were occurring, that they weren't isolated, um, that they weren't just uh, one-offs in many respects. I mean, there were some that were, you know, multiple incidents directed towards the same uh, the same community, um, but also a failure to really understand the, the specific impacts associated with with hate crime Um, now none of them rose to the level of what we saw in in Waterloo but I think that that the reason there was a push was that there was a fear that it could escalate to that Um, and that without you know proper protocols in place without proper uh, understanding of the nature of hate-fueled violence that something like that could happen um, so I think that, you know, had, had Waterloo been able to have that, you know, a similar conversation earlier, you know, what would that have changed the dynamics? I, I think, I think probably not. I mean, the difficulty is, right, it really is about security. How do you ensure security on a university campus, which is an open, uh, an open body, but nonetheless, it also begs the question of, are we prepared uh, to deal with um, with, with the after effects? And in particular, are we, are we prepared to support uh, and even take seriously um, those who are targeted. And so I think that that's what I tried to do with the report is to you know sort of begin that conversation or stimulate that conversation um, about being inclusive with respect to, uh, the people that are represented in security services, uh, you know, who and and I, and I should say, actually, that what we see what what you see at Queens is actually not that much different than what we see uh, in community based law enforcement services, that there is a broad failure. Uh, to take account of hate crimes specifically, and to take it seriously, and to respond and su- respond to and support uh, those who are targeted. So, uh, my hope is, at the very least, that it begin has begun those conversations, and that we're driving towards change in terms of um training but also changing you know working to to change the culture um you know part of me is pessimistic because i think as i said in the report you know that was preceded by i think four or five other reports that made similar recommendations much broader recommendations around edi um but still with that focus on you know shifting the culture and and listening to the voices that have been marginalized. So, um, and, and I hope that that one of you here uh, can maybe talk a little bit more about what is what has happened since. It's been what, two years now? It took a year for it to be released. Uh, and I think had the media not poked, it might not have been released uh, even then. So I, I would love to hear from you um, what, what's happening because you know I have, haven't, haven't been kept uh, apprised in spite of the, the demand for accountability.
3: Thank you so much. I'll uh, jump in here. I mean, I think it's fair to say without going into too much detail that um, the report had not and has not until recently been acted upon um, in the way we would have wished to see, but in response to grassroots organizing that that uh, many of the people on this call have been part of um the 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 implementation of the report has been moved up uh the agenda and so um that's uh that's encouraging um i i i have a question uh which i'll direct to shanna first and then and barbara if you want to join in that would be great and i also encourage people um other people in the audience to Respond to this question, to to raise their hands, to post questions in the chat. We have a we have a whole list of questions, but I'm sure you also have things that you want to ask. So, uh, but but in the meantime, I'm wondering if you can talk about how the violence of the sort enacted at Waterloo might change practices of teaching or instructor relationships with students, um, the student learning environment, um, the kinds of Anti-feminist, anti-racist, anti-colonial pedagogies that uh, many of us try to engage in. Like, what what uh, what does that what does that look like? Um, how might it change? Uh, what can we do to to take care of each other as we try to do that work?
2: That was the one question I couldn't get an answer to on my paper when I prepared. <laughs> um, it's, I'm on sabbatical, so I feel a little bit out of the conversation at the moment, um, but obviously I'm teaching gender specific courses in the winter when I come back. Um, and so I can only answer from my own perspective and, and speaking to my my closest colleagues on campus. I feel like there's a bit of a sense of rebelliousness or resistance that we're not going to let it change anything <laughs> that we won't stop the work. Um, uh, my sense is that for students, so in my research, team my research assistants who are mostly undergrads feel that there's been a somewhat unacknowledged but present sense that they'll walk into classrooms and the teachers will say here's where your exits are and it feels pretty heavy for them um so again I think we're in that first term of processing where nobody really knows what to do or say or feel or think um I I don't know what it's going to change because I think for again I'm going to speak for myself. It's obvious for me. It's not obvious. I'm I'm a bit rebellious and it, I'm doubling down. Like we're not we're not not doing this work. We're doing this work. Um, and again, I tend to teach art students who are quickly on board with what I'm teaching, and it's not difficult. But at least in that space, I'm giving them the language to empower them to be who they want to be in their other learning spaces and to have the tools and the language to do that. Um, So I think that we have to focus on that. And in an ideal world, and something that I've been thinking a lot about, um, trying to make happen on campus through my, I have a a research group called the Feminist Think Tank on campus that meets every week and and kind of brings in students, postdocs and faculty to talk about feminist issues, uh, was to think about offering really public teachings that work through some of the basic concepts of gender sex online hate why misogyny exists you know just like those quick and easy touch points that people feel better equipped um so i don't really know how it's changing it for others but i don't think that people are stopping um or shifting now that's different for people who are in greater senses of precarity than me right i have a lot of different kinds of privilege to support me here Um, and so i can only speak from that but you know i think for those who are precarious laborers, non-tenured, um, visibly marginalized, like I think it's absolutely within people's rights to not teach those things, because it will put them in places that make it unsafe. So, no good answer there, sorry. I totally did not prepare for that question.
3: <laughs> no, yeah, I think he gave us lots to think about uh, Barbara.
0: Yeah. I mean, sadly, I think the further you get away, further you get away from Waterloo, the the less people have those conversations or, or, or think about, think that the risk can happen there uh, as well. I mean, I think one of the interesting things for us at, at Ontario Tech, and especially the uh, Faculty of Social Science and Humanities, and I think education as well, which are in downtown Oshawa, uh, is sometimes it's about location, right? And and where you're safe. But there There is a sense that, although we've had probably more Um, sexual assaults and attempted sexual assaults on the main campus where it's dark and unlit and unattended um, there's this fear of downtown the urban core right and who might be lurking in in the urban core so I think that's always been a part of our our conversations Um, you know security we do have security um, at the entrances of both of our buildings uh, in uh, in the downtown core Um, But having said that, I think that we have also, I mean, our faculty has, has, you know, always been sort of the social justice uh, faculty, and so those conversations generally are are part of our fabric. Uh, But this is really, I think the attack really brought those conversations to the center uh, and to to the forefront rather than being uh, in the background so that, um, you know, there's, there's pressure on our administration and probably other administrations as well. Right to act so that this doesn't happen. Uh, at least think about uh, how we can prevent it on our own campuses. But in terms of the teaching, yeah, absolutely. Um, not stopping any of this. Mm. It gives us more, you know, more fodder, uh, more fodder for conversation. In fact, sadly,
3: well, and I think one of the things that we're we're struggling with here um, is uh, is the idea that you know somehow the threat is from the outside, right? Whereas I think that. Um, that's, you know, the, 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 threat is as much from within and, um, and, and the, and some of the steps that the administration has taken in terms of, you know, removing or suggesting the removal of classroom locations from websites and so on, um, doesn't actually address, um, the concerns of, of folks who are, um, teaching, you know, challenging, content um content that challenges the the status quo so um are, are there questions or comments from uh from the audience go ahead sela you're muted
5: Sorry, probably people on the call know this, but I guess, um, well, first of all, thanks for the talk, which was very interesting. But when you're talking about that network, so why are we not part of this network or can we be? Mm -hmm. When you talk about the four universities, I guess it just seems like these are issues that are important to us.
2: It started two months ago. Yes, of course you are. (laughs) everybody's invited okay. I just for the for the purposes of uh writing the current grant I'm writing I kept it small to keep it manageable for the deadlines uh but it is an open invitation to anybody who's interested to become part of that network I'm just trying to okay you know,
5: okay, find okay. The I just wanted me to I mean I'm sure you'll be in touch with people on this call but I found it very useful to have you separate um, kind of how we would deal with like kind of long-term, larger threats and immediate short-term ones. You had a lot of very concrete points that um, I wrote down. So it would be good to kind of get an update as you're going. And it sounds a bit like a think tank yet may be able to provide good direction to people like us as we try to interact with our own administration, we get some movement on the kind of things you talk about. Like I was a bit disappointed to hear that, I I don't mean disappointed, but it was a contrast that I think the people at Queens on this call didn't feel like our administration was naming the violence in the same way that you did. That's my sense. I'm not in this field, but just as an outsider, I was a bit disappointed that our administration couldn't do that.
2: I appreciate that. And um, please be in touch anybody on this call who wants to talk further about the network. The website is not up and running yet. That's how new we are. It should be up and running by the end of the week. I tried to get it ready for today. It's not ready, um, but that's okay. So yeah, please, um, please reach out. There's my email and, I genuinely hope this becomes a national network. So any university that wants, and especially if there's, you know, people on the call with expertise in this area, you don't have to be, but, you know, thank you for that.
3: Alex, do you want to ask another one of our questions until we have another comment from the floor?
4: Yeah, sure. Um, I'm wondering if you could speak to the connection between online and offline violence. And then I was also wondering um, if there's also concerns about online violence, like doxing or networked harassment, which is so common with the far right and the manosphere.
0: Well, I'll talk in general terms, and then Shaina, perhaps you can talk in, in this context specifically. Um, I Yeah, I mean, there's there's indubitably uh, a connection between the online and the offline, and I think that we can't really separate them uh, any longer. They're so intertwined now that, uh, you know, even the, the users uh, don't distinguish between their online and, and online offline lives. But um, I think that, you know, the most extreme examples of that, uh, that Connection are some of the examples I provided, some of the more recent examples. Um, you know, if we look at it, it just in the Canadian context, we've had 38 murders um, associated with some stream of the far right, many of them mass murders. Uh, There's a trial on underway right now uh, around one of them. And each and every one of them was very much uh, part of the, you know, some sort of echo chambers online, Um, not just as consumers, but as producers as well. So they were reinforcing uh, those narratives and having those narratives read back to them. Uh, in many respects, in a way that you know did create a common culture, uh, and uh, and and you know sort of also you know, this glorification of the violence associated with some of the the earlier um, murders, uh, you know is also a whole part of that that really you know leads these these others right to also want to be heroes uh, of the movement. Um, Manassian referred to Roger as uh, as a gentleman, he refers to himself as a gentleman, uh, that they share the same, you know, they share the same DNA. Um, so, it, it, yeah, there's definitely a connection there. Um, some, one, of, one of the colleagues that I work with very closely has looked at this very closely uh, himself and is, is in a position to be able to uh, recognize some of the folks who are posting online and has been able to make the connections between the kinds of posters they are and their likelihood of engaging in uh, offline violence uh, in particular. Uh, but I think there are other, other ways that we're seeing that connection where you're seeing you know social media, for example, used to organize uh, and to mobilize as we saw with the convoy. All right, again, no disconnect there whatsoever between the online and the offline. They were just, you know, all part of the, the same package. Um, so perhaps Shane, I'll turn it over to you to talk about the, the manosphere specifically.
2: Yeah, I think that, again, because of the way, like I said, platforms are designed in a particular way, they want our attention to be stuck in a, in a particular social media platform and they do it through affect through emotions right and one of the strongest ones we're going to use is hate and fear and so I think that the way in which the manosphere utilizes those in their playbook and there are stated playbooks online that that show you how to do this kind of gathering of people to a cause and then how this then spills out into kind of public spaces um you know consuming that much media tied into hate and fear is absolutely going to frame the way you see your everyday spaces when you're offline like you're not going to be able to separate the two and so like even outside of the manosphere if we think about the way that we can see the slide from QAnon into pink QAnon um which utilized um you know, white women on Instagram and captured them through fear with children that we created this like really intense anti-vax movement, which was already there like 10, 15 years ago with other kinds of anti-vax. But, you know, I'm interested in the way that there are these playbooks. These playbooks are being kind of, they're just, they're picking other issues that have always been there. And then like say, okay, use the same techniques and tactics in your online spaces to produce these kind of frameworks, echo chambers, perspectives that have actual real world consequences. Like that's the thing, it's there, like like you said, it's just, we can't dispute it anymore. We don't need to prove it. There's so many studies, um, but it's, it, you know I think it is an absolute threat to kind of how we live our lives <laughs> in a in a citizenry. <laughs> you know, we saw the absolute devastating effects of that with, with COVID vaccines. And now we're seeing, you know I think Naomi Klein just had a recent article Um, or interview where she was talking because of her new book, Doppelganger, where she was talking about how the issues around anti-vaccination are shifting over to trans issues. Um, And they're using the playbook, again, from the 80s, talking about pedophiles and groomers. Like nothing is changing. It's just being circulated in this absolutely different media ecosystem.
3: Thank you. So we have a question from Jackie and then we'll move to Babette's question in the chat.
6: Hi, thank you. Thank you so much for uh, to to all the speakers and and organizers. Um, I'm looking for ideas really uh, related to um, our uh, exposure. And by our or we, I mean, um, those of us who teach stuff that could be could end up online or end up in outside of the classroom um, that, um, yeah, that would make us vulnerable to doxing or God knows what, Um, but particularly the uh, university policies on this. So um, the classroom recording policies, um, If uh, our universities sort of thrown up, Queens has kind of thrown up its hands of saying, well, that's just the way it is. Um, but I'm wondering if other universities or and anyone has had any kind of different perspectives or luck on what can we do and about it. I mean, I I feel like I'm not just teaching the people in my room. I'm teaching, you know, Twitter sphere, um, and you can't tell, right? Um, is this a conversation that people are having at different universities, or there are there any kind of responses to it? Any any ideas? <laughs>
0: I think the challenge is—I mean, COVID's exacerbated it—but at our university, which is a STEM university as well, um, the emphasis for so long, you know, probably the last six years at least, has been—you know—we need to move to more online, more online, more online. Which means you're recording your lectures uh, and uh, and making them available, and uh, and and there's no interest uh, in moving. What they see as backwards, right, to more in-person classrooms, and again, uh, COVID just exacerbated that because all of our, our courses, obviously, were were online. Uh, I, I think some of it might, some of the push might come from the students because I think there was less satisfaction with the online experience than um, than the administration likes to to think. So, does that mean we can reclaim that space in terms of uh, you know minimizing the ways that our materials are are? disseminated uh by our students um and and you know that we're going to have again we're a social justice faculty in the stem institution so you know that there's resistance in the classroom and that people are posting things to stir up shit uh and to uh you know fan the flames of anger and loss of male privilege and loss of white privilege and and uh, all of those pieces um so it, i think it is those are conversations we need to have and and you know engaged in some of that, uh, some of that pushback ourselves on that issue.
6: I just want to be clear that, um, I mean, it's one thing to have to be recording your own lectures. And I do that because I teach them online stuff. Um, But my concern about not being in control of what's being recorded. So students recording Mm -hmm. without my knowledge with, or without the approval Uh. approval of the university and, and those who have disability accommodations have it. With approval, and I'm gathering from policymakers, we don't even have the right to tell the other students or guest speakers that. Um, and you know, we have so much push to create a safe space. Um, wouldn't that be lovely? It's hard enough when you have those conversations with people in the room about what does it mean to treat each other respectfully and 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 so on, but when you don't even know who's more or less in the room how do we do that um that that's uh my fear
0: (laughs) well we do have a policy um that that students are meant only to be recording with permission but that doesn't mean that they're not recording uh i mean the 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 phones are just ubiquitous they're always on so yeah uh, we can have the policy but how do we how do we especially you know it's one thing if you're in a a seminar of 12 students um if you're in a, a class of 500, as, as some of some of you are, sadly, uh, or even a class of 50 or 60. You know, it's it's really hard to uh, to enforce that to see who's who's doing what with their phones. So, um, yeah, I think it's more operational. Do we
6: it. do we perhaps have a responsibility to the students in the room to mm-hmm. remind them that you may well be being recorded? So before mm-hmm. you come out, um, and that happens not often, not. Infrequently, right? When depending on what you're talking about, before you reveal very personal stuff, um, you should know that, and 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 you know yeah. decide on we uh, have some informed consent there. I'm wondering if we need to do that. Anyway, I'll I'll stop. Obviously, I'm excited, upset about this.
2: One um, thing that, um, if I can hop in, um, I don't know if we have a policy against recording at our university, but. The general sense is you're going to be recorded to so just assume you are being recorded. Um, but one thing that I do know from being someone who's been, you know, gotten death threats from public interviews is that we do have a good system in place at the university for channels of reporting if you do have public exposure that produces death threats. So, you might also want to see if that exists at your university. So, like, as soon as I get a death threat, I know what channels I have to go through. Um, so that's there, <laughs> um, which is I'm glad for, and it actually' is, it's come in very handy and been, and and a bit of a solace, to be honest. Um, it doesn't help with the emotional fallout of that, but it does allow me to know what my my rights are and how to stay protected. And so all of us, I think, are also would be very good if you could just get someone in your life who is very, very tech savvy to try and see if they can dox you. It's important to ask, to have someone try and dox you to see if your, if your personal information is protected. So I've had people who were like, you know, very good coding and all that stuff. Just like, Hey, can you try and find me on the internet? And they say, Nope, you cannot be found. That should be like a service available to all of us if we're going to be
3: publicly out there. (laughs) So maybe that's something we need to ask our universities to do. I don't know. Um, all right. Um. So the question in the chat, and then I see Mary Louise and Aicha. Um. So um. Shauna, how are the STEM-related professors at Waterloo responding to the violent incident?
2: I mean, we have thousands of professors here, so I'm not going to speak on behalf of them all. Um. You know, for people that I do know who are women in them as professors over are in the classroom and are doing a lot of that labor of that conversation, um, they're very concerned with creating spaces that they. I've heard these words exactly to to thrive instead of survive. So it is an ongoing conversation um, that I am hearing from from women professors and STEM. Absolutely, um, I also know that professors are nervous about the ways in which. Um, having the attacker be affiliated with a faculty is not doing good work of us seeing the complexity of who that faculty is. Um, and so I think that there's both conversations are happening. Um, but certainly there is an absolute movement on my, in my campus for STEM gender or women in STEM or women and non-binary folks in STEM um, to have a bit more of a safer space. That conversation has been going on before, like before the attack. So I think that's kind of where it's at right now is like, let's not, throw all the away, (laughs) you know, wholesale because of this, Um, but also let's take seriously what the experiences will be of people in those spaces.
3: Thank you. Mary Louise.
7: Hi, thanks very much for this, both of you, all of you for organizing us as well. Um, I guess I'm thinking, just I was thinking after Jackie's question, um, we have a colleague who in like the last 12 hours has been Uh, targeted on Twitter hundreds of um, hate motivated comments in just a few hours and some of which I guess uh, you know are retweeted to the university you should be firing this person etc and you know we I think probably other people would share my very low expectations of any kind of appropriate response to her or online or any kind of engagement from our university have either of you ever seen an institution that has been able to do something useful either. uh, Like what would you expect an institution to do in that case like so there's the just ignore it route, which I assume is going to go here and sometimes that might be the right thing to do but um. Yeah. Are there institutional responses when you actually see somebody, one um, of your colleagues being targeted, that we could be advising the communications people who clearly don't have these skills or expertise? Um, what can we tell them?
0: Well, first, let me say how sorry I am to, to hear that that's happening. It's just, I mean, it's a sign of the times. Uh, so, so unfortunate. I mean, I get a lot of Uh, As you can imagine, (laughs) because I'm so public, uh, a a lot of hate mail and and threats. And um, the advantage of being at a small university is I can just pick up the phone and call, you know, our our legal counsel, uh, and say, "What can you do?" Uh, I think that we don't have that. And and I think I'm trying to remember who it was um, that mentioned that you know that within their Shannon was it you within university there is a protocol for you know, reporting and and what have you and, and uh, which was something that wasn't at Queens at the time uh, that I did a report. Uh, And here, it's also ad hoc, but it also, you know, again, the, the, the line from, uh, you know, a faculty member to virtually anyone in our university is a very short one. Um, So we're, we're fortunate that way. But I think that it, it, it is necessary to have that protocol in place and something that you know faculty are are made aware of uh, on a regular basis, right? A reminder, you know, whether it's posted on your <laughs> beside your beside your phone on your on your um, bulletin board, uh, just as you know you know what the first uh, first office to call is there. That protocol doesn't exist in most places, so I think it's all it's part of this conversation, part of this push uh, for standardizing an an approach um but i think it's also we tend to you know we tend to think it's an hr issue or or it's a, a legal issue or it's a security issue um it's also a human issue um and, and mm-hmm. we, we tend to forget mm-hmm. That, that there are immediate supports that are needed, emotional supports, mental health supports that are needed uh, for people who are targeted as well. It shouldn't just fall to, you know, an informal network. What if, you're, what if you're somehow marginalized or alienated within a faculty and you don't have, you know, you don't have that network to lean on? We need those mm-hmm. institutional supports as well.
2: Right. Thanks. I couldn't agree more with that. Um, I think that the only reason I knew about the channels and the protocols when it happened to me was because my best friend is a pharmacy prof who led our vaccination outreach here. And so she obviously had years of death threats coming out of the pandemic. And I knew how it happened. So I just texted her and said, hey, I just got some really horrible hate mail. What do I do? So it's not publicly knowledge knowledge at my Mm -hmm. university. I just knew because of her. Um, But I also knew what the kinds of so one of the other things that you might want to consider at the university is for her she doesn't uh, her email gets checked before she sees it so like mm. like it gets filtered the hate mail gets filtered out wow um which i think is useful for that kind of level of not having to always be exposed and open yourself up to that but i think we also need greater mental health supports i don't particularly find waterloo's package that great um so i think it could be vastly improved uh, especially if we consider not only that some of us might be public scholars getting these kinds of uh, this kind of a trail, but also what, what we're asked to hold in the classroom right now. I think we need greater yeah. mental health supports in across the board for faculty. I'd be happy
7: just with an acknowledgement of some sort or like, you know, which, um, yeah, we were asking for over the summer. Thank you very much.
3: Thank you everyone our time is uh, coming to an end here I think you know one of the things I I just want to note, since we sort of started moving on to responses and the role of the institution is I think one of the things. um, our, our group, our ad hoc organizing group has really been struggling with is thinking about the role of of the law and policing and security in the response, understanding that, you know, security and policing often actually reproduce violence and a part of the problem. And um, so how do we navigate all of this um, when we're in an institutional um, context, you know, and, um, and, you know, do we want better security do we do we want you know do we not want security like what what is that um what does that look like and um on that note i want to just invite people who um want to stay in touch about these issues to send me an email if you're if you're interested we they'll probably be more events um to come including hopefully down the line um some uh feminist, radical, self-defense training, maybe some de-escalation trainings. We're looking at all kinds of possibilities as well as ongoing organizing um, to transform this institution. So um, with that, thank you so much to our speakers and to Aicha and to Alex and to all of you for coming and have a great afternoon.
5: Thank you so much, folks.
1: See you you, next, Ned. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.
7: Thanks, Ned.